and it's good to see everyone. Um, the Lord has had us quite busy, so I'm just going to take a few minutes and let's just catch up just a little bit. So since we saw you last, we have had, um, you would probably say a year of trials, actually. Uh, so it all began for us. Uh, when did it begin, Janet? Uh, it began 18 November. We got home in November from visiting you all, right? Am I right? And Janet's dad, who lives with us, had a stroke. And uh, it was subtle, but he had some left leg deficit, and he spent the next two months in rehab. Then uh, that Christmas, so this was 2021, uh, I went to uh, Africa, and we did some ministry there, and I got COVID. I got Omicron. It was coming up the Rift Valley from South Africa. And this is a great miracle, all right? So uh, I'm, I'm, it's right before Christmas. I was going to be home a week ahead of time. And now I had COVID and I couldn't catch a flight back. So I had a negative COVID test. So I'm asking the Lord. Janet had everybody praying. You were probably praying. And I just, I just accepted the fact because I had no faith that uh, I wasn't going to make it for Christmas. Now I called my wife. I was very upset about it. I'd missed so many Christmases in my life. And, and Janet said, well, we'll just postpone Christmas. That's what we'll do. Okay. So calm down. Get yourself some tea and knock it off. Now, she didn't say it like that, but that's what I heard. And so I waited and we just waited. So every day I get a COVID test. And so finally on Christmas Eve, we get this COVID test done. It was kind of like a drug deal. I'm in the back of the car. The guy jumps in the car. He rams my nose with these things and runs the test. And at noon, I get a negative COVID test. And I go, oh, I got to buy a ticket. And so I buy a ticket, and the only airlines flying out Christmas Eve was Ethiopian Airlines. And so I went to Ethiopia, I went to Chicago, I'm in Chicago 5, 6 a.m. I'm going, Lord, how am I going to get home? Uh, United Airlines is canceling all their flights. The Lord said, just be calm. So I go over there, business as usual. I walk into my house, 11.30 a.m. Christmas morning. Because, and I remember distinctly thinking a week ago, that the Lord seemed to indicate to me that I would be home for Christmas. So it was really kind of a Christmas miracle. You know, the Lord has a sense of humor, though. Do you know when I got home, everybody else had COVID? (laughs) I was the only healthy one, so really it was kind of funny. Then after that, Gracie, this is now last year, our Gracie had a very complicated course of appendicitis. It took her two months to get over that, two different uh, procedures, lots of pain, lots of nausea, lots lots of bad stuff. And uh, it really caused her to have big questions about God. And we learned to walk by faith, didn't we? And uh, recently we're in the car. I take her to school when I'm home. And she said, yeah, Daddy, I've been learning that I have to trust God when I don't understand. I go, really? I need to learn that. I need to learn that. Anyway, uh, two months after that or a month after that, Janet's dad falls. We were, I was at camp. We were preaching. He got top-heavy, fell down, hit his head on the concrete, just suffered a big subdural hematoma that required five to six months of rehab. He got over that. Now we're in the end of the last year. He's in our garage. He's going outside. He falls, breaks his back, a compression fracture. That was another two months of recovery. He kind of fell in there again. And it's just kind of been since then, since we left you last. So I guess it's been about 18 months of trial. Did I miss anything? And all of that to tell you, that uh, you have to walk by faith, right? 
So what I want to do this uh, weekend with you is tonight, can I, can I walk? Is it okay if I walk? Okay, good. Tonight, I, I want to talk to you about faith, and then uh, the rest of the messages, I want to talk to you about the personhood of God, because that will increase your faith. And what we're going to do is we're going to set the, the table tonight about faith and why it's important and who it's, who it's in. And, and, and then we're going to discuss all the marvelous, not all of them, but as many marvelous features about God himself that would say, you know, I think I can trust this person because truthfully, you're saved by faith, but then you walk the life of faith. How do you know that? Because Paul said it. Galatians 2.20, it says, And the life that I now live currently, I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, he doesn't mean just his salvation faith, where he was ushered into the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of his dear son, but he means the faith that it takes to live moment by moment. Anybody need that kind of faith? Yeah, we all do, don't we? We all do. Okay, so let's begin. And let's just look at faith. This is our introductory message tonight. It will only go the normal four hours, so we should be good. What I want you to remember tonight is this phrase. Faith is mandatory. It's not optional. It's not elective. It's absolutely a requirement. Every child of God has to live by faith. There is no other way to live. You have to just accept that. That's why Peter writes, he says, you know, the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold, so that it might be shown to be genuine. James talks about faith and how faith is built by these trials. And so if you're confused, you ask, but let him ask in faith. Faith is everywhere. Faith is necessary. Accept the fact right now that as a Christian growing in the things of God, you're going to have to grow in faith. It's just, it's just necessary. So don't fight it. Let faith have its perfect work. All right. Why is faith so important? Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to show you why faith was selected by God as an important, what I call a commodity of heaven, the, the currency of heaven, right? So think about faith. Faith means that you believe something, and more specifically, you believe someone. In the Bible, faith is always connected to the character of the individual, not just the, not just the facts, like it's going to rain tomorrow. That's a fact of, of the weather. But you're placing your faith in the person who controls the weather. You're placing your faith in the bigger authority. And that's very important and as a storyline in all of Scripture. Now, it was attacked in the Garden of Eden. You know the story. Satan comes to Eve, and he says to Eve in verse 1, he says, hey, listen, uh, uh, has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now, that is, that is an exaggeration. And what you find is the facts about God are distorted. Funny thing, today, everybody wants to distort distort the facts about God. And you've got professors and people who are Nobel Peace Prize winners and Nobel laureates who begin to say things about God's character, that God is homophobic and that God is genocidal and that God is some sort of fiend and mean and self-centered. 
and we have all this mantra about how God is. Well, I have news for you. You're totally wrong because you haven't read your Bible. In this case, that sort of maligning God begins right here. And he says, hey, did God really say that? Can you believe that? I can't believe God would say something so restrictive, Eve. Well, first of all, Satan, he didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. What is Satan doing? Maligning God. Now, Eve buys just a little bit of it because she says in the next verse, oh, no, no, he didn't say that at all. He said we can't eat of it. We can eat of every tree in the midst of the garden, except for the one in the middle. We can't even touch that one. So she bought a little bit of the thread of mistrust. Can't even touch that one. I mean, that's a little bit more. So he's not as restrictive as you say. He's just a little bit restrictive. He's just a little bit over the top. So Satan says, now you can read it, verse 4, you won't surely die. That's another lie. Contradictory now the facts of what he said, not just his character. But now we, then in the next paragraph, he maligns the character of God again. Look at this. For verse 5, for God knows in that the day you eat of it, you, your, uh, God knows the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See that phrase, like God? Except for the title God, it's the exact same language in Isaiah when he says, I will be like the Most High. In other words, he's given Eve the same line that he was thinking when he was booted out of heaven. And notice there's a a subtlety about the maligning of God's character. You will be like God, meaning, Eve, God doesn't want you to be like him. That's actually farthest from the truth. Do you know why? Because it's been predetermined that we would become conformed to the image of his son. So Satan's lying, right? And what he's doing is he's making God look like he is less than honest. Now, when we talk about faith, what, about, what is faith about? It's believing in the character and the person of that, other, uh, that one outside of you. So if Satan can come along and he can attack the very core of what solidifies and stabilizes all relationships, then Satan wins, right? And that's what he's trying to do. And that's why faith becomes the common currency of everything in in God's uh, redemptive story. Remember, uh, uh, it was Abraham and he believed God, believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He was given credit of a right standing with God, not because Abraham sacrificed a couple of really, really nice goats, but because he believed what God had said. Rahab, uh, somebody that had an occupation that, you know, is not an honorable occupation, and yet she believed God. What did she believe? This is what she told the spies. We know that your God has defeated uh, Pharaoh and knocked out his army. That was 40 years ago, four decades. She's still, she's still remembering that. And we're afraid that your God's going to come and take us out. So I want to cut a deal with you. I want you to protect me. I want you to, to keep me and, and those in my house. And they said, you drape that red cord out of the window, which is kind of symbolic in and of itself, and, and, and we, will, we will do that. She believed God. She actually entered into the annals of the uh, history of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't just that. Remember, Ruth, Ruth was a Moabitess. Ruth was cursed to have, uh, she was within the 10th generation that should not be accepted by Israel. And yet 
What redeemed the situation was her faith in God. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And you get to the New Testament, and what does Jesus say? He says, he says that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have everlasting life. Faith is everywhere. And Paul says, I came to Christ by faith, through faith alone, in grace alone, in Christ alone. That's the dogma of Romans. And then he gets to Galatians, which is sort of like a miniature, a miniature picture of Romans. And he says, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God. You cannot get away from faith. Why would that be so important to God? Because it was attacked in the Garden of Eden. It was attacked and brought down the creation of God and the human race. Doesn't it make sense that God would use faith to reestablish what it is to be right with God? Makes sense, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I like living by sight. Don't you? I can see it. I can plan on it. I can do something about it. I hate it when I don't know. Anybody like it when you don't know? I don't like it when I don't know. Janet says, you ask me too many questions because I don't know, you know, right? Don't know. But God says, listen, if you're going to deal with me, you're going to have to deal with me in the very bridge that the human race burned at the onset of creation and humanity. And we're going to reconstruct that bridge and it will be the determining factor for your redemption. And it will be the path. It will be the street that you will travel for your sanctification. Does that make sense? That's a big point, and we're not even through part of the message. Okay. All right. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Let's look about some facts about faith. What I just did is I gave you the history of faith. There'll be three points tonight. We're going to talk about the facts of faith, and then we're going to talk about the facets of faith. So if you're taking notes, that's the, the outline for this evening. Now turn over to Hebrews chapter 11 as we begin to discuss the facts about faith. As you know, Hebrews 11 is called the great chapter of the Hall of Fame of Faith. And, uh, and I, I, I love the stories there, but, but you have to read the details to really glean from this. So what are the facts about faith? All right, let's begin in verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, just pause there. What does that mean? The substance of things hoped for. The word substance means reality. The reality of things hoped for. Now, when you have a hope, an expectation, does that mean it's actually occurred yet? No. The idea there is it's for sure in the future, but not in the current moment. I expect we'll have a new house, but we actually don't have the piece of property or the lumber or the, or the rafters or the, or the finished wood or the drywall. I expect it. So your expectation is really yet future. And what he's saying is faith takes that future expectation and gives it current reality. Why would that be? We'll, know, we'll figure that out in just a second. Now also notice this fact about faith. It says the evidence of things hoped for. That word means that you prove yourself. It's, it's the idea of, of, of proving, providing the, uh, the data that supports your conclusion. That's such a big thing in medicine. You know, we, we say uh, you must have evidence-based medicine. All right, that sounds kind of cool, but most of the time we're shooting from the hip, okay? I'm just telling you right now. Well. What is this evidence that he said, the evidence of things not seen? What that means is it's the proof of what you can't see. Now, you get it? 
Both of these are intangible. You things hope for. You can't see it in front of you. Evidence of things not seen. You can't actually touch it with your eyes or your hands or your fingers. Both of those are things that are in the intangible world. And when Satan was destroying the faith of man and woman, he was destroying the intangible character of God. So, he says, I'm going to take faith and we're going to reestablish the tangibility of the intangible. That's what God does. That's a fact about faith. Now, look at verse 2. For by it, elders obtained a good testimony. What that means is that they vouched, they, uh, they gave witness to the things that they heard by faith. The rest of the chapter talks about Uh, individuals who never received the promises of God in their fulfillment, but they were looking afar, ahead in the timeline, and they could see it in the distance. That's what we have to do, you know. When we walk across this planet, so many daily things, whether it be the frustration of the workplace or frustration of, of, of home or the frustration of the traffic, what happens is, is your vision of the future gets diminished. Your expectation of this coming Savior gets warped. And what happens is the Christian loses their way. Well, this is not a time to lose our way. This is a time to maintain our faith and ask God to do great things like revival. That's where we want to be. All right, so he says the elders, they got this this commendation that vouches for the object of faith. They could see it, right? Number four, verse, or verse three, uh, under this idea of facts about faith, by faith we understand that the word, worlds were framed by the word of God. I mean, think about it. We have the big bang theorists out there who are, and by the way, the physics of the big bang theory is a joke, all right? To have a bang that puts all the, all the galaxies in perfect spinning order. Don't you know that doesn't work like that? Did you, ever see, did you ever watch the TV and the bomb blows up like the atom bomb? Did you ever see things coming off in perfect spinning order? That's stupid. That is, I mean, that just defies logic. Because when you refuse to believe God, you then believe crazy theories that make no rational sense. And what God is saying is, listen, You understand how it was made, although you weren't there, nor were you there on the Big Bang, nor though you weren't there, you can see it because you have exercised faith, not in the facts, but in me, in me and me alone. And so you can say, when he says he created the heavens and the earth, you can trust that, you can believe that. And he says, we're framed by the word of God. Now, that is an intangible thing. You know, it's, it's, when God's word is not like a piece of two by four on the ground there, is it? It's not a bunch of nails or, or a power drill or a power gun. It's none of that stuff. It's intangible. And God speaks into the air, speaks words into the atmosphere, and boom, there it is. So that's the Big Bang Theory I subscribe to. Now, you and I have to grab, put our arms around this concept because it is the concept whereby you will please God. That's what it says. Look at verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I'm going to ask you the hard question. 
Have you done in your Christian life things that have been serviceable items to Christ? Maybe you organized a conference. Maybe you organized the food. Maybe you were witnessing on the street. But you didn't have faith. Do you know what? It was impossible in that moment to please God, even though you were doing the right thing. Think about that. You can sabotage Christian activity without faith. How many many of us have those relics in our path? You see, faith cannot be nullified. It can't be overlooked. It is mandatory. That's the title of tonight's message. Faith is mandatory. So he says in verse 6, he says, listen, without faith, you cannot accomplish what you want to accomplish, which is to please him. And what exactly do you believe? Two things. Are you ready? Number one, that he is. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. Is in Greek is ami, ami, and it means that exists, that I exist. That's all it means. And that's exactly the way, that was exactly the opposite way Eve was treating God. She was treating God as if he didn't exist. God knows in the day you eat of it, you'll be like God. So you don't want that. So just treat him if he doesn't there, he's not there. So go ahead and take the fruit, have a good time, and boom, you'll be like God. Have a nice day. Just treating him as if it didn't exist. Wow, it makes sense when we get saved and now we're asked to live the Christian life. We must come to grips with the fact that there is God and that he is active and involved and interactive and wants not just a piece of you, he wants all of you. That's what God is. That's who he is. I'm going to show you this weekend all these facets about God's character that that bespeaks to this kind of language. All right. Now, notice the second thing that you need to have in order to please God, which is faith, that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That word diligently is embedded in the verb, and the idea is hard work after it. It's, uh, uh, and the, the word rewards means that he is the paymaster, that, that you seek him diligently, he will come back to you and he will reward you diligently. Now, there's a story, a a parable that illustrates this and this idea of this paymaster concept. And and the Lord Jesus told it when the disciples said this. You ready? Lord, we left everything. What will we get? Right? I don't know if you've ever said that. It's probably something we're not proud of. Lord, uh, you're a debtor to no man, so what's the payday look like, right? So this is what the Lord says. Let me tell you a story. There's this guy, if you will. There's this dude, all right? And he was like, he is a vineyard guy, and he had lots of land, and he needed some workers. So he went out to the marketplace early in the day, and there were some guys just standing around doing nothing. He says, hey, what are you doing? Why don't you come work in my vineyard? And they agreed on a price, and he went and worked in the vineyard. And he went back almost like every hour after that and found somebody else who was doing nothing. And everybody after that, he said to them, I will pay you what is right. Why don't you work in my vineyard? They didn't agree on a price. The servant trusted the master. See the difference? So at the end of the day, it came, and the Lord was doling out, or the master was doling out what he agreed. And of course, the guy that worked all day got his portion, but the guy that trusted the master to do the right thing got ten times as much 
as a guy that worked all day when you balance out the time and the energy and all that, right? And he got upset about that. So here's what he's saying. If you want, you can bargain with me and I'll, I'll give you a bargain. But if you trust me, you'll get way more than you'll ever dreamed. And I think that's what God wants of us. He wants us to be so reliant upon Him, so in tune to how He conducts the business of heaven, that you can trust Him and He will abundantly bless you. <coughs> the prophet Malachi caught wind of this and he said, bring in your tithes and your offerings. Bring it in. Will I not open the windows of heaven and pour upon you the blessings of heaven, almost so much so that you'll have to say, close the window, it's too much. You see, that's what you want to believe about God, that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. There's a caveat to that. It's the diligently seeking part. It's, it's, it's a verb that, that is a um, very strong verb, and it, and it has the idea of tenacity, perseverance. Many times we fail because we're not persevering and we're not tenacious. We get discouraged like David fighting, uh, David going back to Ziklag and finding that the Amalekites had told, burned everything and stolen the people and the goods. And it said that the men that David had, the 600 men, they were sort of wanting to to hurt, to kill David, and David encouraged himself in the Lord. You know, maybe you're there tonight, and you find that you're having trouble walking by faith, that the Lord really will make this good, that he will turn it into something good. He says he will. Well, I want you to know, my friends, that this is an important step in the journey. It really, really is. All right, I'm going to share with you before we're done tonight some stories about Israel that shows exactly how that happened. All right, so we've talked about the history of faith. I gave that to you from Genesis. We've talked about the facts of faith, or the, uh, and I've talked to you from, uh, from the book of Hebrews primarily, and we ended with this very strong point that it is mandatory, necessary, you must believe that God is, and that He is the rewarder of those who dil- diligently seek Him. But now I want to talk about some facets of faith. Now, these will be three unique stories that come to us, one from the woman at the well, one from the uh, centurion, and one from Abraham and Sarah's life back in Hebrews chapter 11. So we're under the final point of our discussion tonight. So there is the history of faith. There are the facts of faith. Now the facets of faith. And the facets of faith have three unique narratives. The first one is, comes to us from John chapter 4. So you want to turn to John chapter 4. And this is the story of, of course, the woman at the well. Um, I've titled this subpoint: Faith is Looking for the Right Person. Faith is Looking for the Right Person. Now, uh, we just went to Israel, and you're all invited. Lord willing, we'll go February 3rd through the 15th of next year. And it'll only be in Israel proper. This year we went to Jordan. We went to Petra, you know, where they did Raiders of the Lost Ark. We did not find the Ark, unfortunately. 
and um, and, uh, and then we went to the Christians we know in Amman, Jordan. We went to Mount Nebo, where Moses, uh, or, uh, where Moses died, as well as where Moses regave the Deuteronomical law, and where in numbers the children of Israel sinned in the plain of Moab. So lots of history. But next year, we're just going to go to Israel. Now, one of the places we go in Israel is this story here. It's the well of Sikar. All right. Not a lot of tour groups go here because it's in the West Bank and it's thought to be a little bit dangerous. Fortunately, we use a bunch of guys that are uh, organize, help organize for us and they're Palestinian. And actually they're Palestinian Catholics and there's Palestinian true believers. And, and the true believers are actually from the Nazareth assembly. And so they, they really take care of us. So we go to the well of Sikar. Now, when you go to the well of Sikar today, you can imagine the one thing that is on every holy site, or quote, holy site in Israel, is a church. And there's an Orthodox church right on this site. Now, how do you know it's the right well? Well, wells in those days are very hard to dig and, and, and establish. And this well has been there, no one knows how long. And it was the only well in the region forever, right? So this well is right there in this now built up area with a big church on it. And we go in there. <clears throat> And you go in, and it's a big, very beautiful, decorated church. You get a little nauseated about it. And then you go to the podium, and you go back. If it's like this, you go down these steep steps, and they got this little well when you walk down. It's about this big, and there's like 50 of us who are crowding in this room. Okay, And there's this guy standing right there, and he's got a cup. And he smiles. He's missing like five teeth. You know? And you go, did you spit in that? And he's got the water there, and you're supposed to drink it. Now, when I lead the tour, I actually go first because I want everybody else to see that you won't die that day, right? Not that day. So we all drink it and we all go, oh, this well is a car. This is so cool. But what's really cool is the story. See, Jesus was ministering. And when you look at the life of Jesus, there's what they call the early life of Jesus and then his his uh, Judean ministry where he was baptized and did a lot of things like with Nicodemus. And now he's going to travel from Judea, which is Jerusalem area, go north right through the central spine mountain ridge of the country and go to Galilee. Normally Jewish men wouldn't, or families wouldn't travel that way. They travel to Jericho, which is east, go up the Rift Valley, the Jordan River, go to a place called Bethshean in that day, that day, it was called Decapolis uh, or, or Scopopolis. And you then angle back up the Jezreel Valley, avoid the central portion of the country because that was Samaritan country. And the Samaritans, in, in, or recorded by Edersheim, that there was murders along that road. And Jesus said to his disciples, well, I need to go to Samaria. <laughs> the disciples go, what are you thinking? There are active gangs there. We don't do that. Jesus said, I need, I need. It's, the word is very strong. I need, I have to do this. So he goes to Sikar, and it says that he traveled at such a, t- such a time, and at such a, the idea is he traveled at such a time and such a speed that he got there so that he was legitimately thirsty and tired. Don't you love how God is so honest? He's got integrity. So when he says to the lady, Give me something to drink. It wasn't like it was, I'm going to create this great lab experiment and you'll really fall in love with this great idea that I'll present to you. You really want to drink water, right? So he says that to her and 
and she begins to converse with this very unusual Jewish rabbi. And what you find in verses 6 through 9, that it begins about water. He says, I'll just read a couple of things. Give me a drink. And the woman said, well, how is it you being a Jew, which was an ethnicity issue, ask a drink from a Samaritan, which was, a, a, you know, excuse me, Jewish was a religious issue. Samaritan was an ethnic issue. And then a woman was a gender issue. Three reasons why you shouldn't be talking to me, you stranger. But it wasn't about the water. You know, it's a funny thing with God. You'll notice this. God is not always about the obvious. He's really after something else. So when you go through trials, you think, oh, man, I just need to survive this. I just need to hang on until the storm blows over. It's never really about just getting through the storm. It's about becoming like Christ and growing in faith. And so he gets to that point, and he says to her in verse 10 through 14, it's really not about the water, is it? It's really about something else. And he has this conversation. I'm summarizing. He said, you know, if you knew, if you just knew what, what, what the gift of God and, the, and who it is, the person who is saying this to you, see, it's about the right person. That's this point, looking for the right person. You would be asking him for a drink of water because you'll never thirst again. But this lady, she goes, whoa, never thirst again. I would just so love to never thirst again. She said, sir, you have nothing to draw from the well. The well is quite deep. Are you greater than our father Jacob? What is that? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is, yeah. Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well in verse 12 and drank from it from himself as the sons and his livestock? Jesus said to her, well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but I give you. She'll never thirst again. The water that I give you will become a fountain. This is like a spring, a spring of water uh, up into everlasting life. Now, you know, from John chapter 7, verse 63, I think, he says this. He says, listen, the water that springs up for you, that's the Holy Spirit. You will have the life of God in you. So it can't be capped. It can't be uh, uh, dammed up. It can't be uh, uh, restricted. It will be a fountain that never quits flowing. That's what Jesus was telling her. Some of us in our lives, we feel like the fountain of God's youth and energy and vitality has quit growing. You know why? Lack of faith. Lack of faith. So, what you find is that it begins about water, but it's never really about water. What it involves is quenching someone's spiritual thirst. And the first step to quenching someone's spiritual thirst is in 15 through 18, and it's dealing with sin. He, t- he, does, he does a total weird thing. She wants to drink. I would have given her the gospel. He says, well, go get your husband. Knowing full well that she was not currently married. You know what he's saying? What he's getting her to confess? I have a messed up life. Think about it. Five husbands, current live-in boyfriend. How many blended families can you stick in one home? Many of us have that history. How many children are there? Lives have been destroyed. Men have walked out. Beatings, maybe spousal abuse has occurred in all these scenarios. And now she comes at a time of day, supposedly with the heat of the day, when women would normally not go to this well to draw water. And the Lord Jesus says, if you want your thirst quench, we have to talk about where you've been. But we're not going to stay where you've been. We're going to go to where you need to be. And that's what he does next, verses 19 through 26. And he says to her, listen, 
she says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You guys say you should worship in Jerusalem. Jesus then gives her the most concentrated segment on worship in the New Testament. And these verses, the word proskuno is used more often in these verses than any other collection of verses in the New Testament. The other time the word is used is in the book of Revelation, and it's littered through the entire book. But this point, three verses, and he's talking to a woman with a messed up life with truth that will affect the church of God for the next 2,000 years. Do you think he had vision? I do. He's he's a genius. Now notice what this is. The woman, he says to this, to her, look at verse 23. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship. The word seeking is just like the word used in that parable when the woman lost the coin and she searched the whole house looking for the one coin. So in order for us to understand that, I'll ask you the question, have you ever lost your cell phone? Yeah, what do you do? You are the FBI. You rip every cushion apart. You you turn over every mattress. You look behind every picture to find that stinking cell phone, right? That's this word. The Father is ransacking the universe looking for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And this lady gets it. And this lady says, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus shows her this unique facet. Faith is looking for a person. And He says, look at it, read it with me, verse 26. I who speak to you am He. You see, most of the Christian life has to be bound up in knowing God knowing how he thinks, knowing who he is, knowing what makes him tick. How do you get that picture? You study the life of Christ. He who abides in me must walk as he walked. You must know the life of Christ because Christ brings God to fleshly dimension so that you can see grace and truth. Listen, faith is about a person. It's not about the facts, and it's not about whether you can pass a test on the facts or whether you can articulate them and write a great paper on the facts. It is about Christ, that He has the integrity, the wherewithal, the love, the power, the authority, the might, the jurisdiction, the justice, to do everything that He says and do it well. That's what this is about. And if the enemy can get you so spinning out of control by all kinds of trials, by delayed flights, in our case today, by sickness, by illness, by injury, then the enemy can keep your mind off Christ. And guess what? He's won. You become without a walk of faith, and it's impossible to please God without that faith. He's won! And he's not even in charge anymore. Think as an assembly, as we in our assembly circles, that's a call for us today. We must be men and women of faith. It's got to be about the right person. All right, let's go to the next one. All right, the next one is found for us in Luke chapter 7 and verse 10. So facets of faith. Remember, history of faith, facts of faith, facets of faith. The first facet of faith is it's about the right person. The second facet of faith is believing the ways of God. It's chapter 7 of Luke. Verse 1, now this story, to set the stage, is about the centurion in Capernaum, Capernaum, the village by the sea. We go there. It was a healthy community in the days of Christ. 
It was a large community. If you go there today, there's a synagogue, which is from the Crusader era, built on top of the old foundation of the synagogue of Christ era. That synagogue with its old foundation was built by this guy, this centurion. He was a Roman. He was most likely lived more on the east side of the city, more towards the border area of the city, because that's where you would cross over into the next regime. That's where Matthew was found, because he was a border-crossing agent that would collect the taxes. So the Lord Jesus is in a cosmopolitan region, lots of busyness going on. The synagogue literally is about 100 yards or so from the Sea of Galilee. If you walk out of the synagogue, apparently you'll walk into the ancient uh, uh, spot of Peter's house, and you can see the Sea of Galilee another 50 yards away. I like to take you down to that Sea of Galilee, and I like to tell you everything that happened at that Sea of Galilee, beginning with the Lord Jesus talking to his men in Luke chapter 5 and ending in John 21. I digress. Here we are, and the centurion is part of this community. Now notice that the Jewish elders request Jesus to do something for this guy because he was a great man. Look at what he says. Now he concluded all these sayings in the hearing of the people, and he entered Capernaum, and a certain centurion's servant. So the centurion had a, 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 a servant that he loved dearly, was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. Many people have been ready to die, and it's, it's a terrible thing to see. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews. Think, now think about it. I'm not a Jew. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. I should probably appeal through those of the same, same ethnicity. And so he sent the Jewish elders. Now, he had done so much for the community, they really liked him. And so they pled, that means begging with Jesus, to come and heal the servant, to show up and heal the servant. That was the, that's the agreement that the centurion had with the elders, and this was the message they were carrying uh, to Jesus himself. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him. They pleaded, please, please come and, and, and heal this man's servant. He's deserving He's so deserving. He helped build the synagogue. Jesus, come on. You're part of our Jewish heritage. You love synagogues. You teach in synagogues. Certainly you should honor the man that helped make this one where you teach so often. You hear it? That's what they were doing, but the centurion didn't feel that way. Notice what he says in verse 6. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far, now that usually means he's on the west side of town. You can walk across that village in literally 10 minutes. So this is a very close community. You didn't need cell phones at all. And so what happened was when Jesus was uh, already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, not the elders of the Jews, but friends. And he says the exact opposite that the elders of the Jews said. He said, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I am not worthy. They said he was worthy. He says, I'm not worthy. It would be a terrible, terrible disruption for you to come into my house when I am so unworthy. Your holy feet should not be dirtied by my unworthy dirt, my unworthy home. But I know something about you. Now, this is the, this is the important point. Believing the ways of God. I know something about you. I know that you are like me. For I am a man under authority, with authority. And I say to one of my servants, go and do this, and he does that. And, and another, go and do that, and he does that. Well, you're of a similar stature, except much greater. It's not soldiers that you have jurisdiction over. 
It is disease. It is nature. It is demons. It's everything. And all you got to do is do what I have done and told someone to go finish and get the boat ready for me to take a trip. You can tell this disease to go right where you stand and that disease will obey you like my soldiers obey me. Jesus says this, look at this. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd who followed him. Jesus had a crowd everywhere. He was a very notable rabbi. I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. What was the compliment? What was his faith? Well, it was not just that he believed Jesus had the power to do it. It's that he understood how Jesus was working. There was a structure of authority in which he himself had a tiny little portion in the military realm, but he could apply that and see that Jesus had that in every other realm. And being a man that understood those workings of how Christ could work over those authorities, he, he appealed to the Lord with that understanding of the ways of God. So facet number two of faith is this. It's not just the right person. It's understanding the right ways of God. The ways of God are baffling, aren't they? Why did this happen now? Why did this occur now? When I was in Israel, I'm leading the tour. I immediately, one night, I eat dinner. And the next 24 hours, I was worshiping at the porcelain god, right? I was throwing up in the other end, too. And I was sick for like three or four days. And I'm going, Lord. This makes no sense. I'm supposed to be teaching. If I don't teach, this is not going to work. I said, Lord, the ways of God. Then after that, the next week, I get a cold. I can't believe it. I'm coughing. I'm sneezing. Can't believe it. Both weeks, I'm there, sick. I go, God, this makes no sense. Do you ever say that to the Lord? Lord, this makes no sense. If you would just listen to me, we could order this thing so much better. You know what we call that? A lack of faith. That's exactly what. You see, God says it this way. My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Your job is to understand what his ways are and what his thoughts are. And if you say, that's too much for me, then God would say to you, ask in faith. Ask me. You need wisdom. Ask me. I got a lot of it. I'll give it to you. Ask in faith. Not wavering. Don't let that man think he'll receive anything unless he asks in faith. Faith in what? The ways of God. And you do not have to understand all the intricacies of the ways of God in order to believe. That's what Gracie taught. But what you need to do is trust in the person who orders such ways. Are you going through those trials and they make no sense? These last 18 months have not made much sense for us. Janet has been locked down at home. She couldn't travel. She missed so many things. Never complained. Just the right spirit, the right heart. All her family's busy having fun activities. Now, Janet, she's at home. We affectionately called her the stayer by the stuffer. We took that out of the Bible, of course. But she stayed by the stuff. And she took care of things in invisible ways. And no one would know. I know. You see... We didn't make sense to us. And I, don't, I can't even tell you if it makes sense now. I don't care if it makes sense. I know 
that my God says that all that is occurring will be used to make us into the image of Christ, and that's the definition of good. And so let's become like Christ. What's wrong with that? Nothing. It's what we've been predetermined to fulfill in Christ. So you don't need to know why. You don't need to understand every intricate detail. You don't even have to answer somebody that says, what's your God doing now? All you got to do is say, listen, I may not know what he's doing, but I got something that you need to know. I can trust him. I can trust him. See, that's a walk of faith right there. Anyway, what's the last one? The last facet of faith tonight. This is back in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at, uh, in closing, that's the signal that we're almost done and you can have your pie and eat it too. All right. We're going to look at Sarah and Abraham. Now, you you know the story, right? Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees and went to Haran. And Haran is kind of northern Iraq. And then uh, he spent some time there. His father died. God spoke to him again and said, Now I want you to go to the land of Canaan. That's in Genesis 12. And so he goes south, and it's called, the, it's called like the, the bisecting highways of all travel of that part of the Middle East. That's what Canaan is. And God knew that, of course. And so Abraham comes down into that region. Now, um, Abraham was 75. When Abraham was 80, uh, excuse me, 99, and Sarah was 89. God said they were going to have a child. Now, many of you who are 89 or 99 and you're going to have a child, that would be a nightmare, right? But in this case, it was a great joy. Based on those ages, you know, when they died and you did the proportional comparison to today, she was about 50, maybe 55, okay? So that's how you want to think about it. It's still still kind of, you know, maybe getting past the flower of childbearing, right? And that's what was true. Her body was as good as dead. She didn't make any more eggs anymore. All right? But God said she would have a baby and it would be with Abraham. Now I want you to look at this. Verse 11, by faith, her Sarah herself, interesting in the Greek when it says Sarah herself, it's usually in the middle voice, which means she personally really believed this herself. That's an emphasis. She herself also received strength to conceive and she bore a child when she was past the age. Past the age of what? Of having kids. She was postmenopausal, right? Because, look at this, she judged. You know what that word judge means? It's the word for procurator. means that you are in a place of decision-making in a judicial court, and you make a determination that determines the fate of somebody else's verdict. She is acting in that capacity, not because she's bigger than God, but she is acting in a capacity that says, I am making an official rendering that I believe God will keep his word. Facet number three, God keeps his promises. What was facet number one? It's about a person. What was facet number two? It's about the way, believing the ways of God. What's facet number three? God keeps his promises. Don't you love that? And that's exactly what he did. Sarah, in some kind of legal determination, determined that he was faithful. That means the quality of being trustworthy, and it's linked to his promise, that he made a promise. 
That's what this is about. God keeps his promises. All right. What about Abraham? Well, scan down. It's not too far away. It's verse 17. By faith, when he was tested. Don't you know? Faith will be tested. I feel like such a loser when it comes to these tests of faith. That's why I say I don't think I have very much faith at all. Fortunately, he says you just need a a, a mustard seed's worth and you can move mountains. That's great because I don't have that much. But he says this. When he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who received the promise. What promise? The promise was that Isaac was going to be the generation that brings a host of people as numerous as the stars. Go out and look outside at the stars. And if you can number them, that would be the number of offspring out of your body, Abraham. And now it begins with Isaac. And the very Isaac where it's supposed to initiate and start, he says, Go offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain, which I will tell you. That is just crazy. Never has God indicated in any of that history of Genesis that he required human sacrifice, ever. In fact, we read later on, God was adamantly against that. So this makes absolutely no sense. Why would God have him do that? Look at what he said. Instead of following what Satan did to Eve, and disbelieve the character of God, God assumed that he, or Abraham assumed that God will be true, that God will make this right, that God won't violate his character, and God won't violate his promise, and God won't renege on anything. And so he's contemplated. Look at that word in the text. It says in verse, uh, concluding, verse 19, concluding that God was able to raise him up. That word concluding means that he's doing mathematical analysis. He's, I can just see him walking that road from Beersheba up to Mount Moriah. And he's thinking, 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 how does this work? How does this work? And the promise is through Isaac. And Isaac, hey, Daddy, we forgot something, right? We got the fire, we got the knife, we got the wood, but where's the burnt offering? And you're looking at your kid going, well, where's the burnt offering? I mean, you know, what, how would that rent a, 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 a huge... A swath of pain in your own heart. And if it would do that between Abraham and Isaac, how much would that question have reverberated in heaven and been asked between God the Father and God the Son? And if it was painful on the earth, how much more would have been painful in heaven? I don't know. All I can tell you is that Abraham came to a conclusion I never would have come to. He assumed that if God's promise was true, and that God keeps his word, and he's told me to sacrifice my son, he's just going to have to raise him from the dead. That's it. That's the only thing. That's the only conclusion I can come up with. Can you believe that? Do you ever think that in your life? You got this obstacle here, you got this obstacle here, you got this obstacle here, and, and you think, well, God said he'll never leave me or forsake me, and, that, and he's given me this promise in the Psalms, and he's given me this promise in the New Testament. I don't know what he's going to do, but it's going to be grand. Maybe it'll be like like something as miraculous as Abraham experienced. I don't know. But I do know that he keeps his promises. And those promises are what I'm basing my life on. So God, if you go off on your promises, who's going to praise you? There will be no one left. So I know you'll keep your word. So you'll just have to raise them from the dead. You know how amazing that is? Let me ask you something. The doctrine of resurrection, was that really talked about much in 
Genesis chapter 22. We're only 22 chapters in the Bible. Where does it talk about resurrection? Nowhere. Except if you believe Job was a contemporary of Abraham, which he may have been, Job may have, may have indicated that there would be resurrection, you know, because he uses that in some of his languages and speeches. But rather than that, the doctrine of resurrection was really not well developed. I mean, we've got 1 Corinthians 15, my goodness, resurrection. We've got 1 Thessalonians 5 about resurrection. This is amazing. Abraham would come up with such a conclusion so that God is true and every man would be a liar? Don't you see? That's exactly how you and I are to live the Christian life. That we will assume the best about God, not because he needs our positive reinforcement, but because God keeps his promise. That's the kind of God you have. That's the kind of God that is worth dying for. That's the kind of God that's worth living. Beloved, if we need one thing in our little puny lives today, we need a reason to live. And guess what? He's given you lots of reasons to live. Faith has a history. Faith has some facts. Faith has some facets. It has to deal with the person. It has to deal with his ways. And it has to deal with his promises. And it's all summed up in one singular thought. God is trustworthy. Let's pray. Father, um, I... So much, Father, to walk by faith. Sometimes it seems like a far off dream, Lord. But it's not an emotion that I try to find, is it, Father? It's a decision of my will, just like Eve deciding not to believe in you. This day, we choose to believe in you. You're not some sort of guy like Peter Pan that needs children to believe in him to be powerful. You want us to believe in you because that's the way it's supposed to work. The creature is supposed to trust its creator. Oh, Father, we need you to do a work in our souls in this day so that our faith increases And we can announce with absolute certainty the incredible reality of God himself. The evidence of things, or the reality of what is hoped for, the evidence of what's not seen. George Mueller had a dream, Father, that you would give him a work that he would testify to both Christian and non-Christian that the invisible God is very visible. We need to do that again. And we ask you, Father, in the name of your Son, to fill us with your Spirit so that we might be a people, not only of the book, but of faith. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.